Today is Sunday, December 13th, 2015, and this is episode 142 of the Defensive Security Podcast. By the way, if you're keeping track at home, this week is actually three years for the podcast, although if you do the math, you realize that we've slacked off a number of times. That's pretty impressive. I think probably people lost some bets on that one. The fact that, you know, we're still going. That's true. Absolutely. Well, you know, if our families keep listening, we're going to keep recording. <laughs> right on. <laughs> but seriously, uh, you know, you started this silly little thing, and, you know, congratulations. That's pretty awesome. Three years. Thank you. And uh, thank you for coming along for the ride, and thanks to everybody who listens. All, I don't uh, have a choice. I'm being held prisoner. Help me. <laughs> I'm stuck in the compound. He beats me if I don't record. No food for you. No dinner for you. <laughs> All right. So uh, just it to... puts the podcast on the recording or it gets the hose again. <laughs> the thoughts and opinions expressed on this show are ours and do not represent those of our employer. By the way, who are we in case we've got some new listeners? Uh, I'm Jerry Bell and you are? Andrew Callett. Thanks for joining. There we go. So uh, let's go ahead and get into some stories for tonight. The first one we have comes from the FireEye blog, and the title is Thriving Beyond, Beyond the Operating System, Financial Threat Group Targets Volume Boot Record. So uh, this was, a I thought, an interesting one because I know a lot of, uh, a lot of organizations, especially larger organizations, take a uh, nuke-and-pave approach to uh, remediating infected systems. As well they should. As I'll well they should, absolutely. Just say out there and, you know, running malware bytes and hoping it's clean is probably not good enough in today's day and age. Absolutely right. And so uh, so what the, the deal is here, there's a piece of malware or it's, I guess, I guess a collection of malware used by a particular threat actor called Nemesis. And apparently earlier this year, Nemesis was supplemented to include some bootkit functionality. And, and basically, uh, what is going on now is that uh, this Nemesis malware actually has the ability to survive a Windows reload. Uh, apparently only if it's using, only if uh, you're using master boot record. And as far as I can tell, if you're using EFI or um, GUID, you're not, it's not going to be able to get you. And and to be clear, when you say reload, you don't even mean a reboot. You mean a reinstall, uh, yeah, a clean. Re- correct. Wipe, pave, and reinstall, and that son of a bitch is still there. That's right. <laughs> and it's because it's hiding in a portion of the hard drive that is not usually overwritten during a reinstall. Yes, that's it right. loads up before the operating system. Right, and the, so so the you know the the issue there is that if you 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 come to realize that you're infected, you reinstall Windows, which is you know a generally well prescribed thing. Uh, once you're back up and running, you're going to get reinfected because that that loader that bootloader is still infected, and you're still you know it's it's uh it's going to come back. So 
really, the in that particular case, the only thing that you can actually do is a complete format of the drive. And it's not entirely clear to me, um, depending, I guess depending on how you boot your system, you, you that may actually not even uh, solve the problem. There's not a lot of detail on exactly, you know, the conditions under which it rewrites itself and that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, I think this is an indication, uh, along with some other things that we've talked about in the past, an indication of the, uh, I would say, the increasing sophistication and focus on kind of long-term persistence of malware. You know, we, we've been seeing, you know, bio, things uh, being uh, put in BIOS and, and now now this. And, you know, this is not, this is not nation state stuff. This is just a, uh, you know, a group that's trying to steal your credit cards. So it is incredibly sophisticated. If you look at, if you really dig into this article and they talk about the capabilities involved, it's pretty impressive. They are very robust, very mature. The other thing they don't talk about in here is how exactly this particular set of malware, uh, is dropping on these boxes. It doesn't discuss the initial exploit vectors at all. And a couple of interesting things there, right? Because when you get into a discussion with somebody, certainly at a, at a higher level, they want to know how do you defend against this. One thing that's very obvious to those of us who are, who are deep in the industry, but sometimes is a little bit of a nuance, is the payload is different than the exploit, typically. So this is the payload. This Nemesis kit is the payload, but the exploit could be a whole bunch of different stuff. So yeah. when someone says, how do I stop this? That's like saying, how do I stop all malware? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think I think it's probably somewhat intentional that they didn't cover that because, you know, there there are so many different possible uh, vectors. It could be phishing. It could be compromising the software distribution platform. It, you know, it could be just uh, an almost unlimited number of ways that this stuff gets delivered and I think we we probably do more and more going forward need to start thinking about these things as distinct elements and and it kind of goes back to the stupid kill chain which I really hate but you know there it is it is true right you know this is there are wholly distinct things this is this is the the payload the you know the thing that is maintaining persistence in your environment and there's a you know, a, a very different phase that gets it there. And um, they, they both take different, maybe somewhat overlapping approaches to defend and uh, defend against and, and detect. Yeah, and, and to be clear, there are ways, by the way, to wipe the MBR and the VBR. Uh, it's just not done in a typical OS reinstall, but it's not like you've got to trash the hard drive and, and you know buy a new one. Right. You can wipe that if you know to wipe it. And maybe that's something we need to start building into our checklist for reinstalling uh, a box after a malware. But we've also seen some other stuff like this. We've seen stuff that gets tied in the video cards, GPU, um, you know, kind of... Uh, flash area, if you will, on the video cards. We've seen some other stuff that can hide in BIOSes occasionally. Uh, we're getting to a point where it's getting difficult to separate the software from the hardware when you've got a fully compromised host. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the Lenovo, you know, the, the Lenovo's 
bit of malware, which you know basically uh, it, it it lived inside BIOS and leveraged the functionality that would reinstall uh, stolen laptop tracking software. Except instead of <laughs> reinstalling that, it was actually reinstalling its you know ad supported stuff. And uh, so even if you, I mean, you could actually completely replace the hard drive, reinstall Windows, and it would come back. And I think the issue is that as time goes on, uh, those kinds of vectors are going to be more and more exploited because, you know, we're, it's just becoming more and more commodity. And it makes sense because you, you don't, as an attacker, you don't lose your investment which is really, at the end of the day, what it comes down to. You know, these right. these bad guys are becoming more and more coin-operated. And, you know, they don't want you kicking them out. Unless it's nation-state, and then they're, you know, Tom Clancy-operated. Fair enough. So the other thing I wanted to say on this, and then we can move on, is there are some behaviors that could be used to help spot this. There's some registry keys that call out. There are some indicators of compromise. There's some CNC channels that call out. There's a number of things in here that are called out. Challenges, these are constantly changing. Exactly. Uh, but I think where we're continually sort of preaching, and I think where the entire industry is slowly catching up to the concept is, we probably have to shift to a breach detection model than a breach prevention model. It doesn't mean we stop doing all breach prevention, but we truly have to accept that that is not enough. Right. And and be a little more abstract in our thinking about indicators of compromise because like you said, they're they're constantly changing. So, you know, you can you can know what to look for today about the uh, you know the the indicators of this Nemesis malware which were relevant a month ago. Right. But that's no guarantee that the thing that's infecting you today uh, is going to exhibit those same indicators. It's trivial to change, as long right. as they've got an update channel. Yeah. And they talk about in here that there's many updates. Anyway, it's a very interesting article. Well worth reading. Indeed. So moving on to our next story, which comes from CSO Online, and the title is How the NSA Uses Behavior Analytics to Detect Threats. I will warn you in advance, this article is incredibly buzzword compliant. Totally. Absolutely. If you're playing along at home, this might be a good one to get your uh, bingo card out for. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. So uh, this is a this is a post-Snowden uh, look at the NSA. And, and I, I thought it was interesting from the perspective that uh, the NSA appears to have consolidated a lot of their infrastructure into a private cloud type, you know, buzzword compliant environment, which they've then kind of wrapped around a lot of uh, apparently very granular controls. And you know, what, what, what's interesting to me is what's said in here, I assume, contrasts with what the state of affairs was before. So for instance, they talk about how you know this new environment allows for a lot of granularity. And um, if you, as an analyst, log in and, and look, look at something, you're going to see something different than another analyst who might have a different level of authority. And which sounds like a very sensible thing, but it kind of makes me think, well, I guess they didn't have that before. So <laughs> that's um, always the problem, by the way. I've had this exact same conversation with uh, auditors and regulators. When you say, well, here's how we're fixing the problem going forward, they 
if they're smart, go, wait a minute, you didn't have that before now? <laughs> That's right. Well, let's not focus on that. Let's focus about going forward. We're, we're here to talk about the future. That's right. <laughs> Stop living in the past. So um, anyway, you know, they, they, they don't talk, they don't really divulge a lot of uh, nitty gritty secrets, except to say that they're, they are intaking or ingesting uh, I guess log data from most of their systems, and they're really focused on identifying anomalies. So, for instance, if uh, you know if a particular employee has normal work hours from a normal location, and then suddenly see them pop up from a different place, you know that's probably something. That's probably an anomaly that you want to pay attention to. And I don't know if you, I guess, depending on your uh, risk tolerance, you might completely block them or you know just just uh, flag it for a follow-up but I thought that you know the the model is interesting and for for those environments that it makes sense and it can be can be warranted this is probably um, you know end to end from the granular control all the way through the the monitoring where where we're going to end up yeah, I, I agree. And but you know, this is not necessarily that new. This was a debate we had back in the days of IPS. Uh, baselining and detection off of baseline versus you know strict signature based sort of behavior alerting. The only challenge with this, and I'm not taking away, right? I'm not trying to say that the pocket case nullifies his approach. I think it's a valid approach, and I, I like it, I, and I recommend it. Here's my only caveat I find interesting. What if the bad guy is already in your environment when you baseline it? That's a <laughs> big problem, yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying not to do it, right? I'm not trying to play that one percentile game. But it is one of those interesting discussions of, okay, well, uh, it works great going forward, but if you don't have a known clean environment, it's not foolproof. That's a good point. And it also very much takes a lot of smart people a lot of time to tune this behavior. There's a huge area of study and thought around do you tune – where on the line do you tune for false negatives, false positives? Where's the happy medium? What is more important to you? Can you sustain having false negatives but no false positives? Can you sustain having false positives but no false negatives? Can you be someplace in between? It is a not trivial approach to this, but it is effective. However, it takes staff to do it right and smart staff who aren't buried in the everyday cycle of putting out fires who can really get a feel for this stuff well. Yep, good point. Very good point. uh, I also love how the NSA also says, well, we're not going to tell you everything about what we're doing. <laughs> but they do, they, they do hint that, you know, j- just think about what would be normal on your network and then... You right, know, at it, a very granular level. Right. And, and, then then what, and then we look for things that would depart from that. Right. Which is... That is not a, a mind-blowing revelation of an approach. It's just not easy. It's not easy or cheap, right? And I think that's the problem. I guess if you're the NSA, you probably, you know, you just, uh, I don't know, you go shake down some senators and you get a little more money, right? It's true. Didn't really mean that NSA. Sorry, it was a joke. No, it wasn't. Okay, carrying on. <laughs> so, 
Yes, moving on. Uh, next story comes from Data Breach Today, and the title is Wyndham Agrees to Settle FTC Breach Case. So this this story here has been languishing now for, I believe, uh, eight years, or almost eight years. So the F, uh, Wyndham Hotels was breached back in 2008, and they lost 619,000 credit cards, which, by the way, is, you know, is, is like a pittance compared to today's breaches. I mean, that's, that's it, true. It's amateurish by, by today's standards. Um, you know, the par- local, local, uh, liquor stores lose that on a, on a weekend on accident. So it's, you know, whatever. Uh, so, so, so here's the, here's the deal. And we talked about the FTC, I think with respect to LabCorp, uh, last week, you know how uh, LabCorp apparently is. You know they they're uh, I guess being exonerated to some extent, even though they're no longer in business. Um, however, some interesting developments have happened recently. Uh, first is that the FTC's authority to enforce uh, you know this these kinds of record restrictions and and whatnot on U.S. based companies was affirmed in, back in August by the Third District Court which is interesting. And then uh, Wyndham, apparently in the wake of that, has agreed to settle, but they are settling without admitting wrongdoing, and apparently they're not going to pay a fine. However, they are going to undergo uh, oversight by the FTC for 20 years. And so for twenty for a period of 20 years, uh, any time or if they were to suffer, if Wyndham were to suffer a breach of more than 10,000 credit cards, they have to, Wyndham has to provide uh, an assessment back to the FTC within 10 days. Wow. And, and apparently they also have to, it doesn't, there's not a lot of detail, but they talk a little bit about it, about how obviously Wyndham being a, you know, uh, in the retail business accepts credit cards, they're beholden to PCI. Apparently as part of this agreement, they're going to undergo more frequent PCI reviews, though there's not a lot of detail about uh, specifically what that's going to look like. The flip side, if I read between the lines, all that Wyndham agreed to was the PCI requirements. In essence, what Wyndham said is, okay, tell you what, you drop anything that has to do with personal identifiable information. You agree that PCI level compliance is good enough and we'll agree to, to meet PCI compliance and you can audit us against that, is what I'm reading between the lines on this story. Yeah, but they I think they have uh, they have a little bit of extra oversight uh in reporting requirements. C- certainly. And, yeah. and and I agree. Uh what I was somewhat interested in is what technical controls was the FTC trying to push? What was the FTC trying to say was adequate security? And what I find interesting is that Wyndham appears to have gotten them to say PCI is enough. Which is huge because yes. this is um that was one of the really uh, kind of long-running concerns is that the FTC has basically been chasing co- companies around with a stick, saying, you know, a- after they've been breached, saying you didn't do enough, you didn't do enough, and they, you know, they, these companies are coming back saying, well, tell us, you know, give right. us, give us safe harbor, you know, tell us what's what's acceptable, and the FTC's actually had a lot of success in saying, no, don't look behind the curtain. You know, we'll just tell you if it's not enough. 
Right, exactly. And I think Wyndham backed them successfully into a corner to make them decide that something had to be a reasonable line in the sand. And we can argue till the cows come home whether or not PCI is strong enough. But from a regulatory standpoint, you've got to have some standard to be measured against. So for Wyndham to get the FTC to say PCI is the standard, I think is actually a really big deal and very much sets something that companies can look to, hopefully, in theory, going forward and say, look, we have met the PCI standard. We're audited against PCI standard. You can audit us against that. Now, if we're still breached, hey, we in good faith met the PCI standard. Yeah, there's an interesting other side of the coin, though. So um, prior to this, if you were PCI, you know, if you didn't follow PCI, and I guess by definition, as I understand it at least, uh, PCI compliant organizations that get breached are retroactively found to not be following PCI. Um, Now you not only as an organization have to worry about the PCI council coming after you, you probably will also, in maybe some cases, are going to have the FTC coming after you because now the FTC is basically saying, you know, our <laughs> our magic powers uh, start when you're not PCI compliant, right? And so now apparently they, I mean, the the the, the under you know the undertone to me in this is that the FTC, if if you are found. Uh, to be not PCI compliant in a breach, which, as I understand it, that is the case every single time, uh, the FTC also has the ability to come after you. Right. And now this is a precedent. So there you go. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's one I think companies, especially large companies of any size, need to worry about. Yeah. And, and just, uh, I do want to dwell on that. I and, and I'm happy to be wrong. If somebody knows of a of a case that is does not follow this, you know, let me know. As far as I understand, any every company that's ever been breached has been found not to be PCI compliant after the for, fact. For those that care about PCI, yes, right, yeah. right. So you know, you go into you're you're, you're humming along. declaring yourself PCI compliant or your QSA is declaring you PCI compliant, you get breached. You know, what something led to that breach and whatever it was, you know, it it, it retroactively cancels out your PCI compliance. Right. Now, I'm not sure that the FTC is going down that path. I think that what they're saying is that these are the standards we're going to measure you against. Uh, And even if you are breached, if we find that you adequately applied the PCI standards, uh, but but see that's that's the point I'm stuck on because the, I, I I hear you, but that's how I read the article at least. I I I I understand, and I I think that is what the article said. However, I think the implication is similar to the PCI Council's view that you, as a breached, you know, compl- PCI compliant breached entity, were weren't actually PCI compliant because. If you were, you wouldn't have been breached. Now the the FTC is going to say, "Look, you know, some you got breached. Something didn't work." And and it's 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 yeah, I hear you. It's kind of def, that, it's kind of definitional that something failed. I, I I get what you're coming from on the PCI's you know council's view, though I would argue that 
that is a naive and short-sighted viewpoint for them to have because we all know that there's plenty of ways to be completely PCI compliant and still get breached and still absolutely meet up to every letter of the law and every spirit of law in PCI and still get breached because PCI doesn't solve all problems. It's sort of a minimum baseline in many ways. It will be interesting to see what happens next. Yeah. You know, and I'm wondering when the SEC starts getting involved with this for public companies. Mm, yes. Well, <laughs> Man, I, I didn't mean to give them that idea. <laughs> Apparently the FCC, FCC is, is uh, as well. Although the SEC, I guess, um, I, I think the SEC has already started exerting some oversight on uh, broker-dealers. Yeah. So I, I could absolutely see, by the way, as part of people's quarterly filings for public companies, a full... Uh, you know, IT security audit assessment be included in the 10 Qs. Absolutely. Is it 10 Q? Is that the right one? Yeah, that's the quarterly one. K yeah. is the annual, yeah. Yeah. Yay! Awesome. Sucks being a public company in the U.S., and it's getting worse. <laughs> so, all right, so moving on, uh, our next story is actually something we don't normally cover here. It's um, it's actually a Microsoft Security Bulletin. <laughs> Yeah, so this is... Well, uh, the problem is we don't cover Microsoft Security Bulletins because that's all we would ever cover. Well, true. But this one, I think, rose to uh, a, a new a new level of importance for us to talk about. So uh, the, the story comes from Microsoft's TechNet site, and this, the title is Security Update for Microsoft Windows DNS to Address Remote Code Execution. So the, uh, the awesomeness is that uh, your... Windows Server serving as a DNS uh, a DNS server is uh, trivially remotely exploitable. Although I, I'm not quite certain that there's actually code out there that exploits it yet. But I have not done any research over the weekend. But as of Friday, I have not seen any exploit code or POC code floating around. But there might have been something released over the weekend. So take a grain of salt. Yeah. So um, so this is one of those this is one of those kind of worst case scenarios. Now, fortunately. It, I guess in this case, apparently there isn't an exploit or exploit code out there, but it's not hard to imagine. Holy cow! It doesn't get a lot worse than this, right? Um, you know, you're you're especially in the context of a, of a Microsoft shop where you have a, you know an Active Directory infrastructure. Most of the time, your Active Directory servers also serve as DNS servers, and um, and by the way, you know I've, we've talked about it in the past, haven't talked about it recently, when your Active Directory infrastructure gets owned, you're going to have a bad day, week, month, year, and probably a couple years. Right. So, And that was kind of the point I really wanted to bring up, which is a very, very common practice to have your AD servers internally also be your internal DNS servers. And this shows a really, really strong reason why that's a bad idea. And we really need to split those functions. Yeah, although I do wonder if, um, I guess depending on the nature of how you exploit it, you, you know, it may not matter. I mean, if the if your DNS server is is, is a domain is, domain member, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, and let's think even more f- fully along these lines. If you've got a Windows server on the edge serving DNS to the world, think about that. Oh my God, that's. <laughs> That that's a level of horrible that I don't want to think about. But people do it. Yep, and people fry turkeys in their garages too. Yeah, it's it's a bad idea. So the reason I wanted to bring this up was, 
you know, it's stuff like this that makes it really trivial for either an external guy if they're if they're hitting an external Microsoft DNS server or an internal guy who's looking for an easy escalation path or whatever. In theory, single DNS request, system admin writes on the box. Bad day. Yeah. So it's worth taking a look at your DNS architecture. Not a lot of companies do. DNS just kind of works, and it's just run by the Windows guys, and uh, it really probably bears some pretty serious look, uh, pretty serious review as to how you architect it. And I'm not saying you can just change it overnight, but dear God, patch this when you can. The other problem, by the way, when this shit comes out at the end of the year, a lot of companies are in freeze, and they can't change anything. Yeah, that's a, gr- that's a great point. You know, and then you're having the debate of, do I take the risk of patching and breaking during critical season? You know, especially for retailers or anybody involved in the retail industry, they make no changes from before Thanksgiving until well after the new year because of the holiday spending season. They don't want to have any chance of being down. And in fact, SunTrust was down last week. Uh, their debit card network was down because of a third-party payment processor that had a hardware failure. So this is exactly what people worry about, which is that you know during the holiday spending season, having something go down that they're not making money. Yeah. So the, all that being said, now let's say you're in that boat and you're in a freeze and something like this comes out, what do you do? Do you take the risk and patch? Or do you not take a risk and not patch until after your freeze is up? Uh, obviously, it's going to come down to a decision for every organization, but man. right. But that's the type of risk-based decision-making we've got to start making. Right. In my mind, if this is on your edge facing the internet, patch immediately. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, you know, the other thing that I would say is if, if let's just you know, say that you do have that sitting out on your edge and this vulnerability comes out, if it were me, uh, you know, I, I would want to undergo some kind of analysis to get myself comfortable that I hadn't been owned. Yeah. Because we don't know if this hasn't been already exploited in zero days before this came up. Exactly. Yeah, that's a fine point. I, I personally don't want Microsoft servers sitting on the edge anyway, but companies do, and that's the reality of the situation, so we got to deal with it. Well, I... You know, I don't. I'm not going to get into the Windows or Microsoft Linux or debate, but I think for me, it's the, the the real travesty is when you have an Active Directory member server exposed to the internet. Okay, that's fair. So if you are going to expose a box to the edge to the internet. Don't let it be part of your AD. Now, the flip side of that is, if you're talking to a sysadmin, they're like, "Well, I need to manage that box." So what do I do? Maybe you have just an edge AD domain for manageability. I don't know, something. But you certainly don't want to expose the entire yeah. network, the entire AD architecture. I say get a helmet, man. <laughs> but these are the trade-offs when you've got you know, limited folks to, to run the gear. And in my mind, having manageability and patchability and logability on those boxes has value. So you've got you to gotta figure out that trade-off. No, I, I, you know, clearly, look, I, I've seen an unfortunate number of instances where Active Directory systems sitting out on the internet have been compromised, and that has led to the complete 
and utter devastation of very, very, very large networks. And there is, by the way, there is no easy way to remediate. You basically yeah. start over. I mean, you start over. It's you're 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 done. You you start over um, from an Active Directory perspective, anyway. Uh, so the, the you know you're right. The problem is that. Active Directory has become such an integral part of kind of the normal workflow of IT that if you if you have systems that aren't part of it, you know a lot of a lot of stuff doesn't work. You know a lot of the the normal automation tools and workflow and and things uh, don't work. You you don't have that single point of ID provisioning and deprovisioning and and on and on and so you know that that's um you know the, I think the I think the the point is you've you've really got to uh, think through the best way to to design this stuff. And and by the way, I think this is this kind of goes back to something I talked about a long time ago that we as in I think as as an industry, not 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 just information security, but really bro- more broadly in IT, we need to have some some better or or at least you know <laughs> any kind of design patterns, right. That say, okay, here's what are best practices. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're a Microsoft shop. You know, here's how you should. Here's the best practices for how to arrange things. Here's how your, you know, your Active Directory for us should interrelate and connect mm-hmm. or not connect and and that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, I agree. It makes a lot of sense. The challenge we have is that things are moving so rapidly. Now, how quickly do those designs get out of date? Well. Uh, uh, Often, obviously. We, we almost need to get to a bit of stability and maturity in our technology, at least from an operating system and design standpoint, to stabilize long enough to start building those best practices in certain areas. Because as soon as we build one, then SDN shows up. As soon as we build one, then virtual servers show up. As soon as we build one, you know, things keep changing very right. rapidly. Microsoft shifts server 2016 and it changes all of the concepts around I don't know it does this I'm just saying theoretically changes all the concepts around 84 and such okay I, I don't know I'm not saying it's not worth it I'm saying that I think this is part of why it's been difficult for us to establish those best practices because things are changing so rapidly yeah I, in, in some respects I think it's it's slowing down but in other respects I think it's accelerating and yeah, you look at Microsoft. They're going to a continuous improvement model on the operating system. Right. As opposed to monolithic releases. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see how that changes things. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're kind of getting off topic a little bit, but it's... The other challenge you have is you can't just wait for patches to come out and apply. You really do have to think about this stuff. Well, that that's a great point because you know if you were to if you were to turn this around, think about like the Heartblade style situation. I know this wasn't the case here, but you know if, for instance, the exploit code had led the patch, what would you have done? You know, and that's a really difficult discussion. By the way, it, it, it's yep. it's hard to think about. Um, you know, where where you know some trivial exploitation capability against your key infrastructure is you know it's is available to everybody it's really simple rob graham is you know scanning the entire internet for it and 
and uh, you know, posting who's vulnerable, who's not, and whatnot. Um, what are you going to do? That's this is a tough, tough nut. It is. So uh, we had, we had one more story for tonight, and this one is actually a Reddit post. We're getting crazy. We're, this is crazy. So, uh, so the title of the post is "Early Warning System for Crypto Wall or Crypto Canary," and and so the. The poster here uh, works for a uh, managed service provider and you know, basically points out that uh, he's trying to, to share share the love and pointed out that uh, he or she, I'm not sure if it's he or she, uh, created a, you know, I, I don't know if they created it or if they're following something someone else created, uh, kind of an early warning or canary style system where they're looking for uh, the the presence or the creation of certain files that are indicative of a crypto locker attack. So most of these crypto locker type programs will drop um, you know a file that basically tells you how to decrypt your data. And if you look for those files, uh, you know in, in more or less real time, that'll give you as an administrator some insight into you know who got who got hit and when they got hit and what you know wh- what directories got hit and. It may help you get ahead of the issue. Yes. You know, that box may already be exploited to a certain extent, but it may help you limit the damage. Yeah, and th- th- there's a lot of uh, lot of comments in, you know, in this, uh, in this post. I will say there's not a lot of silver bullets. You know, there's a lot of discussions about using AppLocker and removing admin rights. But, you know, um, there's a lot of discussion also about how difficult it is to run in any kind of environment with lots of users with AppLocker and, um, you know, how CryptoLocker doesn't really rely on admin rights. Right. So, there, there again, there's just it not can, a great... Uh, it can leverage them to spread even further, though. True. Yeah. That's, that is true. But uh, anyway, so I thought it was a uh, uh, well. You it was your idea, so uh, it seemed like a really good thing given the I would say extreme prevalence of crypto locker or crypto ransomware these days. It also shows a mindset that I think we need to embrace more, which is looking for thinking a little outside the box and looking for IOCs and such like this, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, the, again, no silver bullets, but. Uh, it, it, I think it is really starting to become uh, a, a very serious problem for a lot of IT organizations and kind of points out that, um, you know, we gotta, we got to get better. we got to figure out how we're going to solve this stupid thing. Seriously, Jerry, can you fix it, please? Sure. What's the matter with you? Have it, have it fixed by next time. <laughs> Whatever. Good job. Appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Anything else? Uh, yeah, Shmoocon. So just a heads up to our faithful listeners. I have been accepted to speak at ShmooCon. Yay! So I will be there. It's coming up in mid-January in Washington, D.C. So it is a hell of a difficult time to get a ticket. They sell it in literally seconds. Uh, But if you're there, hopefully you'll come see my talk. It'll be really lonely if nobody does. Please, please. And come say hi if you're a listener and a fan. Or even not a fan, but a listener. Come say hi. There you go. And uh, I guess the other bit of news is that I am uh, attempting to start a monthly get-together if you are here in the Atlanta area. What? what? I know. I know. Way to bury the lead. Whatever. 
You tell me nothing. Nothing. That's right. How am I supposed to prepare if I don't know? OPSEC. Oh, wait. I'm not invited, am I? <laughs> this is why you didn't tell me. You didn't. You don't read my Twitter uh, feed, do you? I, well, if you didn't tweet 73,000 times a day, yeah, I do. Rare. I, you know, I'm busy. I have things going on. No, I miss that. I'm important. Damn it. Cl- uh, Okay. So anyway, yeah, I, I don't have the details worked out yet. And actually, I was going to talk with you before we work out the details. But point is, watch this Watch this space. Just throw it out there live and show how unorganized we are. That's fine. That's great. Good job. Whatever. Anyway. But anyway, so monthly get-together. Monthly get-together, yes. Wow. That could be exciting. I will uh, I'll be sending out an evite. Uh, I'll try to post it in the... Uh, so we're thinking sure just like a obviously infosec focused and right. just kind of a meet and chit chat. Exactly. Presentations, hackerspace. What what are you thinking? Uh, f- at the start, just a meet and greet, maybe uh, dinner and drinks, that sort of thing. Um, and just then a- you know, and then uh, see where it goes from there. Okay, I like it. Good. Yeah. This is this is the this is the agile methodology of podcasting. Ship it, we'll fix it in post. That's right. <laughs> so, anyhow, uh, we will talk again next time. Thank you all for listening. And, uh, Have a great week, everybody. As always, love your feedback, love your iTunes reviews, good and bad. And one lately was awesome. Some some guy working at a university like uses our show with his class, which I thought was pretty pretty wild. Yeah, so sh- shout out to that class. Yeah, could could be he's using it as how not to do things. I don't know. We don't know what what way he's using us, but that's pretty cool. So if you're in that class, hi. Could be punishment too. Could be. <laughs> Anyway, thanks again. Uh, You can find links to the stories we talked about on our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lerg. That's L-E-R-G, by the way. And me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And we will talk again next week. Bye-bye. Does this mean we're starting to generate tenure at a university? I think so. No, you can't handle the truth. Um, did you see my notes on two story ideas? I did. Um, yeah, we can talk about those. Damn right we can. <laughs> I'm not unfunny. I'm lacking. I'm funny challenged. Yes, you're you're humorously challenged. It's a it's a disability, man. You shouldn't make fun of me for being unfunny. You need to support me. ADA says you need to support me. The Americans Without Humor Act. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.